Welcome back to the 11th week of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, our podcast goes along with our chronological reading plan and just sort of discusses the Bible passages and any questions that any of you have. Um, we enjoy being able to do this and continue to want to hear from you. So if you have questions regarding this podcast or earlier ones, don't be afraid to send them to us. We did get one sort of a comment that I thought was good and kind of worth uh responding to so i'll read that to you and then we can talk about it so the person says and this is referring back to uh the second half of exodus with Mm -hmm. the description of the tabernacle's construction Mm -hmm. you talk about visualizing the beauty of the tabernacle and it struck me that yes it was gorgeous until all that blood gets there (laughs) the tabernacle is gorgeous but when it has to deal with our sin through sacrifice it's nasty i mean that killing animals isn't clean The spreading of the blood isn't clean. Burning flesh, while it might smell good to God, doesn't necessarily to us. That the flies and things would come as you're killing animals. So just that it's gorgeous until our sin comes around. We should understand that the tabernacle probably got messy, but the altar where most of the sacrificing happened was outside. Now that doesn't mean that the altar wasn't covered in blood. Um, I mean, blood was flicked on it and then... Mm -hmm. Different portions of the tabernacle inside also had blood sprinkled on it. Um, But I think that if you can imagine living in a a place where bright colors were not common and like a brightly colored tent with beautiful fixtures was was not a regular part of your life. Um, You know, you're living in tents traveling through a wilderness. I don't think that would have taken away from the feeling of awe and beauty but it is absolutely a little bit gross by our standards. Yeah. And she's right. Our, our sin does grossify it, for lack of a better term. And I think it's, I mean, even with that, a powerful picture of God's hospitality. He's willing at all to live amongst the people, you know, and that's, that's really what the tabernacle represents. But then he's willing to welcome that messiness certainly not all the way in again you know except for the one time a year but as i say that you know so physically the mess may not get all the way in but leviticus certainly talks about that the the iniquity itself the pollution of the people's Mm -hmm. sin enters all the way into the the most holy place and so has to be dealt with Uh, it is interesting just to think about just from the kind of cultural perspective that you know putting blood on something for them was was a cleaning act uh-huh. and for us it is certainly not in fact i think for most people <laughs> blood would is like the most disgusting thing yeah well they weren't cleaning germs yeah well that's right that's true and a lot of us have not been around like a slaughterhouse or just a bunch of blood you know uh, i remember living in central china you know in a majority muslim neighborhood and there's the, the holiday that commemorates Abraham in Muslim tradition, Abraham almost sacrificing Ishmael. You know, they kill a bunch of sheep and eat them. And, and you know, it's a, it's not quite a sacrifice in the biblical sense, but, I mean, there's definitely a relation there. And, and so just the sidewalks and the streets of our neighborhood would be covered in, in sheep blood hmm. that uh, they would wash off. In some places, but in other places it wouldn't, and so it would just sit there, and then it would kind of bake, because it was still early autumn, and anyway, so it is, it's gross, it's gross. 
Next week, we will read the second portion of Numbers, chapters 19 through 36, which will finish out the book. And I imagine that most of you will be getting through Numbers for the first time, or for the first time in a while. Numbers, generally speaking, is a little more readable than Leviticus, since it is mostly stories, but the census chapters are formidable barriers for getting into and out of the book, and once you're inside, we find stories of rebellion and brutality matched with laws that strain our commitment to treat this book as the Word of God. And a couple of years ago, I read a book called Bewilderments by uh, Rabbi Aviva Zornberg, and she called the book that as a commentary on numbers because in, in Hebrew, it's called the wilderness or in the wilderness. And, and uh, she, you know, numbers is bewildering to modern readers, but then that's also the experience being described as the, the, the Hebrew people are literally bewildered. And so I think, yeah, that's a, that's a fitting way to think about it because uh, numbers is bewildering. Mm-hmm. And my approach is to acknowledge the strain, acknowledge the brutality, and try and set this, as we really should do with all of the biblical literature, within its context, you know, in the ancient world from a different time than our own. And so just like Leviticus, we are not to attempt one-to-one applications to our lives from numbers. Phineas speared Zimri and Kuzby through the guts, so we too must hunt down idolatrous fornicators and murder them. No, that's not the kind of thing that we're doing here. Instead, we must discern the intended effect of these stories in their original setting and then work backwards from there to our own situation. And we'll try and demonstrate that a few times on today's episode, though it is a skill that certainly requires a lifetime's learning and rereading and experience. Besides those disquieting aspects, Numbers is also the book of the Torah with the most obscure structure. It appears to be rather randomly ordered, but we should trust that Numbers was not compiled thoughtlessly. Part of our work of reading will be to ponder why the narratives and law parables are set where they are. How does what comes before and after help us understand? How does what lay across help us understand? And I say across because, following Mary Douglas's proposal, I see numbers as being what is called a ring composition. So if you imagine a ring or a circle, any point on the edge of the ring has a parallel point across the circle. So likewise, if you imagine numbers as kind of being arranged in a circle, the different stories and the sets of laws have a matching or a parallel story or a set of laws, so to speak, across the book. Uh, And the central portion or the central thing that the book turns on is the triple rebellion uh, in uh, 11, 12, and 13, 14, where the people want more quail, and then Aaron and Miriam rebel, and then the whole people refuse to enter the promised land. Um, And I think this is important just to point out because we don't do much ring compositionally nowadays, and so it's a form that we're very unfamiliar with. Uh, but I think it can be helpful to try and understand what the kind of the parallel portions of numbers are to just understand what they're saying and, and why they are where they are. And I read the main theme of numbers as being about fulfillment, both of blessing and curse. Vows, curses, and blessings and their consequences appear throughout the text. 
These speech acts bind both Yahweh and his people to actions. In essence, they are checks written on the balance of the future, which only the Creator controls, and therefore men and women ought be very, very cautious about invoking such things outside of what Yahweh has already committed himself to, which is mirrored in Jesus' teaching much later on, to just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And the blessings given to Israel by Yahweh, by Yahweh directly and through his servants, Jacob especially, are renewed and fulfilled in numbers. The people have fruited and multiplied into a great host, both before and after their wanderings in the wilderness. God's promises to Adam, Eve, and Abraham have held true. Balaam, the foreign wizard recruited by the fearful king of Moab to curse the approaching Israelites, finds that he can only bless them because the Creator has blessed this people and will allow no curse besides his own to befall them. And the people are given several avenues for expressing their vows and commitments to Yahweh in chapters 28 and 29 in the regular liturgy of sacrifice, special offerings, and the great festivals held in the spring and autumn. These festivals, Passover, Trumpets, and Camping, are highlighted. Each commemorate the fulfillment of God's promises through his acts in history. And there are a few sub-themes that branch out from the trunk of fulfillment. And the first is purity or cleanliness. And so Numbers expands our understanding of the clean-unclean dynamic in some subtle but I think important ways. So in chapter 19, it explicitly links uncleanness to death and the presence of death. Uncleanness is seen as a rip in the fabric of Yahweh's good universe through which corruption and chaos can get in and wreak havoc. But Numbers also makes clear that impurity is not associated with any particular people, but rather the sin, idolatry, and death that are present in anybody. So it's not like the priests are never unclean and women are always unclean. Anyone can enter back and forth into these states. Anybody can be made pure, and the process is often pretty simple. It just involves washing and then waiting, uh, and no particular occupation is unclean. So I say all that just to say when we compare kind of some of the clean-unclean laws in other nations at this time, that the purity rules in Israel are actually very, uh, what's the word, not equilateral, equal, egalitarian, there it is, that anybody can be clean, anybody can be unclean, you know, and that things that everybody does is what can put you, push you into the unclean realm. And there are two sub-sub-themes that twig off of the branch of clean and unclean in Numbers. Marriage and obedience. And we cringe to hear those two words in the same breath, and that might be a clue that the same rebellion stewing in the wandering Israelites stirs in our hearts still. But first, marriage. And so the marriage relationship is a focus throughout Numbers, uniquely, I think, since Genesis. Exodus and Leviticus don't have a whole lot to say about marriage and and marriages. Uh, Genesis obviously has a lot through its stories, and then here in Numbers, it's a theme that just keeps recurring. And so we have the infamous law parable about the jealous husband in chapter 5. Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses on account of his foreign wife in chapter 12. The murderous idolatry disaster in chapter 25. 
errant vows between husbands and wives in chapter 30, taking foreign women captive in chapter 31, and then the ruling on preserving estates through marriage within the tribe, which is how the book concludes in chapter 36. And so we just see the marriage relationship being highlighted throughout. And I think that one of the kind of background things happening in a lot of the Old Testament books is that ancient Israel really struggled with marriage, specifically what it meant to marry outside the tribes of Jacob. And their individual marriages were a small version of how they as a people were to exist as dedicated to Yahweh in the midst of all of these nations. And that, I think, is one of the keys to understand Numbers' framing of marriage in these stories and laws, that human marriage is a reflection of or a share in Yahweh's covenant with Israel. The two are tightly bound together and can affect each other. Marital infidelity is really an issue of covenant faithfulness. I personally do not think any couple ever carried out the ritual outlined in chapter 5, but that law parable does indeed describe the fraught relationship between Yahweh and the people of Israel. And this brings us to the second twig theme on the clean-unclean branch, obedience and consequences. So the rebellions that Numbers is famous for continue in chapters 20, 21, and 25. Moses himself finally rebels in chapter 20, or disobeys somehow, and is barred from entering the promised land. The people are punished for their disobedience with seraphim in chapter 21, but in the same story are given a way to be saved through obedience. They then have their first significant military victories against the Canaanite tyrant Sihon and the giant demon spawn Og of Bashan. Priest Phineas is commended for his actions in murdering Zim- Zimri and Kuzbi in chapter 25. These are brutal, complex stories that defy easy moralizing, but I think we can at least see the threads of obedience reward and disobedience curse woven throughout. The third branch theme is inheritance, and there are two senses here. What do God's people inherit, and who is involved in the inheriting? As to what the inheritance is, it is the land promised to Abraham, which is detailed in chapter 34. The promised land is expanded to include territory on the eastern side of the Jordan River, what today is the kingdom of Jordan, settled by Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh in chapter 32. Along with the physical real estate, God's people inherit the treasury of blessings built up by the patriarchs, the renewal of Eden in their midst. And this is what Balaam sees as he tries to curse them, well-watered land, shady trees, and peace. And we're made abundantly aware that it is the entire swath of Jacob's tribes that are included in the inheritance and blessing. While the story will later focus on Judah, with Levi and Benjamin tagging along, Numbers is annoyingly insistent that we understand that all the tribes belong to God's family. You know, and I think that this is one of those things where you think about the compositional history of the Torah, and I'm not disputing that Moses had a hand in writing most of it, but we we know that it was edited later on. Current scholarship consensus is that it took its final form a century or so after the exile to Babylon. And so I think in some ways that Numbers is a reflection of that time as well, that there was a lot of dispute as people were coming back from Babylon, the rich elite were coming back from Babylon, the common poor who had remained behind, and whose land was it? And Numbers keeps insisting that all of the tribes have a share in the promised land, not just Judah uh, or, or Benjamin or whatever else. 
You know, and I think that Numbers' insistence on the breadth of inheritance makes sense and should cause us to consider who we are trying to shove out of God's family in the present day. And the inheritance theme is furthered in the laws articulating the place and provision of the Levites in chapters 34 and 35 and the cities of refuge. And the story of Zelophehad's daughters adds nuance to how inheritance and belonging are understood in the Old Testament broadly, and also specifically how Numbers treats women. Mela, Tirza, Hogla, Milka, and Noah powerfully complicate the picture. Numbers conceives of women as real human people right alongside men, capable of both rebellion and evil and bravery and justice. The final branching theme that I want to highlight is the international reach or the international scope of Numbers. Yahweh's desire for his people to be a source of blessing to the nations is found sometimes in a heavily contorted way throughout the book. The Old Testament is often caricatured as being exclusionary and xenophobic, and chapters 21, 25, and 31 certainly provide plenty of material to support that conclusion. But again, numbers won't let us get away with easy conclusions. There are laws throughout that make clear that non-Israelites are welcome to participate in the covenant life of the nation. All of Balaam's poetry and some of the other extremely ancient poetry quoted in chapter 21 are from non-Israelite sources. Balaam himself is a non-Israelite who is known from the archaeological record to be a regionally renowned figure, similar to including the wizard Merlin in your story, all of Israel's neighbors news stories about Balaam the seer. Of course, Balaam is famously lampooned as being less perceptive than his own ass. And it is worth noting in our reading of Numbers that none of these events were happening in a historical vacuum. The entire ancient world was in a state of upheaval during this period in history. You can look up the Bronze Age collapse if you want to know more. But it was a period generally of war, instability, plague, and mass migration of many peoples. And with that as the historical background, we can see that Numbers is a story of Yahweh dragging his people, quite literally kicking and screaming, across an apocalyptic wasteland toward a garden kingdom currently ruled over by half-demon monsters that they will soon reconquer. So, if you can finish the journey of Numbers with even a little bit of all of that in mind, I think that you will find yourself bewildered, challenged, puzzled, hopefully wiser than when you started. So one thing that I noted was that unclean <clears throat> things can spread by touching. Mm -hmm. You just touch something if you are unclean and, and it becomes unclean. Um, why is that? Like how does uncleanness spread by touching? Like a worse version of any other physical contaminant or change of state. And so if you are wet and you touch something, then that thing is now wet. Or if you're sick, you know, of course they didn't have germ theory or anything sure. like that, but they understood. Well, this that is almost like germ theory. It is. The spiritual form of it. They understood that, that if one person is sick, it'll make other people sick. You know, uh, uh, ancient cultures had like quarantine rules, you know, that would, that worked. They were effective because they were I mean, they weren't dumb. Like, they could tell that, you know, you could pass sickness, you know, in these different ways. And so I imagine that some of that or a lot of that is the basis for what we see here is that they just understand that, you know, states of, of chaos or, or destruction spread. Uh, I mean, it's just an observation. If, you know, one part of your wall 
begins to soften and get moldy, like that will only spread and it'll spread to other things. So this is the, this is the word of God. And so it's, but it's working with, or it's interacting with kind of their traditions and, and kind of the, the culture and, and the, the treasury of their observations, right? They're thinking intelligent people, just like we are just with a different worldview. And so they could, they could see that, that corruption spreads um, and so I think that their understanding of that in this spiritual sense, it makes sense that this would spread by contact. You know, and again, I think this is a good reminder that for the ancient Israelites, there was no like supernatural, natural distinction like we have, right? And so, you know, if you have COVID, you isolate yourself because you don't want to make other people sick, which you should probably do. But for them, yeah, they would say if you're sick, you need to isolate yourself. But also, if you're kind of showing corruption in these other ways, you also have to isolate yourself. Not because of germs, but just because of this this uncleanness, the state of uncleanness. You know, and so it's not so different than a lot of uh, a lot of the things that we do. You know, again, we we have a background of of kind of understanding. You know. The, the microorganism world and everything else, but I think they could just observe these things. And so, you know, you have a lot of, I believe what's called like an analogical understanding. So like, if it's like this with dirt, then it's probably like this with sin, you know, like kind of that, like working from a smaller example to a, to a bigger example, if that makes sense. Is there any part of that that still rings true for Christians today, that corruption has a a way of spreading from one person to another? I mean, I think that this just serves our, our observed reality. Like, I think it's not, the dynamic is different for us uh, because we are made clean in, in a permanent sense through Jesus. But I think that, you know, someone else's sin can affect you. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, or just the permission giving. You know, if we, if see, we, if we see somebody else doing something, it suddenly makes it a lot easier for us to to do it. I think even just thinking about a general cultural general cultural sense of like as more people are doing something, it just kind of seems to change the atmosphere a little bit. And so absolutely, I think that we can we can understand sin this way. I think that the difference or the big difference that Jesus makes is that unclean people do not have to be isolated. Like his cleanness overpowers uncleanness. Mm-hmm. And so again, we're not taking one-to-one lessons from this because the one-to-one lesson would be if someone is visibly dirty or sinful, they are not to be around Christian people. And that's absolutely not the, the example and the reality that Jesus brings to God's people. We can be amongst unclean, so to speak, unclean people. Uh, we can be amongst unrepentant sinners. And those things don't have to infect us. In fact, that's one of the scandals of Jesus's ministry. Correct. Yeah. What was Moses's and Aaron's sin in Numbers chapter 20? Because Yahweh seems very upset, um, so much so that they're both going to die before entering the promised land. And yet a cursory reading um, makes it difficult to ascertain what the sin was. Yeah, it is a little difficult to ascertain. I know the Psalms kind of do some interpretation later on and make it a little more clear. But here in Numbers, uh, yeah, it is difficult. You know, I think that on the one hand, Aaron has done enough probably to deserve <laughs> not making it into the sure. promised land. So he makes, he makes a little more sense. You know, Moses, 
one of the things we learn from the Old Testament and really from the New Testament is that being God's like special representative actually is not something you necessarily want to be. <laughs> yeah, Jeremiah in particular doesn't. It seem comes to enjoy it. with a lot of potential cost mm-hmm. and a lot of potential risk. Uh, Jesus was crucified because he was the Messiah. And so I think something similar is, is happening. Now, Jesus wasn't disobedient himself, but I think because Moses is the the singular representative, there is a degree to which he's being held to a higher standard than the other, than the rest of them. Uh, he, you know, everybody heard God say the Ten Commandments, but then Yahweh spoke the rest of it to Moses. You know, Moses was the only one that was allowed to come up the mountain. Uh, and so I think that there is some... Something's happening here in Moses that makes this a particular rebellious, disrespectful act. Mm -hmm. So God doesn't strike him down right then, which I think is a mercy. But it's like, yeah, okay, so you've done this and you're you're staying out of the promised land. What's going on with the snakes? (laughs) What is going on with the snakes? Chapter 21, we have this story where the people, um, they complain, it seems, as they've complained before. Mm-hmm. But instead of the typical response that Yahweh gives, instead he sends venomous snakes among them that bite them and many of them die. Um, and the people the people come to Moses and they say, we sinned and we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then he makes a snake and puts it on a pole. And anyone who gets bitten and looks at it lives. But weirdly, too, the name for snakes in this story is seraphim, which is, is a name yep. for angels. Unravel this tapestry, Pastor Ben. <laughs> I mean, do you want to follow the rabbit down to Wonderland or not? <laughs> let's do it. Let's <laughs> let's get to Wonderland. Yeah, and I called them seraphim in my summary. Mm-hmm. Oh, I caught intentionally. <laughs> so uh, l- let me let me let me answer this in two frames of mind. So frame of mind number one. The Bible will use fantastical language to describe things that can be accounted for scientifically. So seraphim would mean like burning serpents or fiery serpents. And that would be a reference to like the fact that snake venom burns, you know, when they bite you, uh, the burning of the fevers or whatever else. And so that's why this kind of mythological word is being used to describe these vipers or whatever they were that were sent by Yahweh that caused the people to burn. All right. That's mindset number one. And that may be, I, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know. Mindset number two is that when Isaiah has his famous vision at the beginning of, of the book of Isaiah and sees the seraphim, what he's seeing are things that look like serpents, fiery serpents with six wings, and that it is these beings that are sent by Yahweh to punish the people. It could also be that the serpent in the garden was perhaps a seraphim, again, a spiritual being that takes the form of a serpent. And so then Moses puts a image of a seraphim on a pole. For whatever reason, this is the way that God chooses to, to heal the people if they look at it. I know that I don't think I'm making this part up. I'm pretty sure that there are early church fathers who saw, whether it's an angelic seraphim or not, but just an image of like the serpent being speared or the serpent being crushed in Moses's pole, kind of symbolizing the victory of Jesus over the evil one. Of course, none of that is is present directly in numbers because they have no idea. You know, I mean, they were aware of serpents as a spiritual 
spiritual uh, symbol and everything. So I don't know. So those those would be those are two I think legitimate ways to think about this. I know that some people are eager to see things in the Bible as being as normal as possible for various reasons, and then there are people who and this is my perspective, so it's hard not to say something biased, people who are willing to entertain that our world is full of spiritual, fantastical things. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so I think my current understanding of this story is that these were spiritual beings that came and attacked people. One of the things that's interesting, given the, the fantastic response of Yahweh, is that the complaint is a little different than the ones that go before it. Uh, Previously, the people have complained about not having more than what they're given, right? They miss the delicious food of Egypt, or they want meat to go along with the manna. But they're actually complaining here about the manna itself. Mm -hmm. Not just that it's not enough, but that it itself is bad in some way. So the provision of the Lord is being rebuked um, by the people. And that that is new. They've, they've wanted more, and we can all relate to that. But what they've been given is now being seen as too little. And mm-hmm. Yahweh responds, maybe appropriately. I imagine anyone bit by a serpent, a uh, spiritual flaming serpent, probably did not complain about the manna again. <laughs> <laughs> or just a normal serpent. Or just, regardless. Well, and again, back to the whole, they didn't see a separation between nature and supernature. If a camera had been there, perhaps what the camera would have recorded was a bunch of what we see as snakes coming to attack mm-hmm. these people, but that they understood, you know, they were being animated by spiritual forces or, or whatever. You know, I think that is that is part of the... And why I said earlier those two different mindsets, I think, are both a legitimate way to read the story is because the reality is, I think, more complicated than either it was just snakes. I think that's the wrong way to read the story. Or to say... They were like mythological creatures that came and attacked them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's probably not quite the right way to think about it either. You know, and and this is a we this it's it's a weird story, and it kind of comes out of nowhere. Like we haven't had any preparation for like this even being an option. <laughs> I think at least at least just to say that the wilderness, and we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. The wilderness is a realm of chaos, right? Uh-huh. It's outside of ordered the ordered human habitation. And so that's where monsters live. And so here they are. Yep. You know, just like there are monsters in the waters, there are monsters, there are goat demons, there's Azazel, there's fiery serpents. The earth just opens itself uh-huh. up and drops you into Sheol like there's there's monsters and, and uh, whatever, you know, kind of just chaos out in the wilderness. You know, and so I think in some ways it's like not only is Yahweh providing for their just material and nutritional needs, but like how much is he protecting them from what is all out there? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is kind of a glimpse of the story as well of like, not only am I making sure that you're fed and watered and all these other things, but actually I am holding back these evil beings, you know, who want to get in at you. Uh, and I'm not letting them except for this one time. Because you complain because about you complain. what I've been doing right, for you. Right. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about Balaam. Mm-hmm. The first question, and I think that a reader who's not read the story in a while might have a moment of surprise, similar to being unsure about what's going on with Moses. So if I can read three verses, um, verses 20 through 22. That night God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them. 
but do only what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Ah, so that reads to me like Yahweh says, Balaam, go. Balaam says, okay, I'll go. And then Yahweh gets angry with him for going. Help me. I have no idea. Yeah, neither do I. (laughs) So I did some reading on this uh, in preparation for this morning, actually, because I've wondered about it before. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the thought is... What we must take from this is that um, there's some intention in Balaam to um, go as as Yahweh tells him, but his intention is not to do what Yahweh wants him to do, mm. right? So he's told to uh, uh, to do only what I tell you, and Balaam thinks, okay, I'll go, but then when I get there, I'm going to do, do my own thing. But we don't have that in the text, and so... Mm-hmm. We'd be left to um, either rely on Balaam's reputation that would have been known by these people as perhaps being someone who could be um, tricky or deceitful, or we're just left to wonder why Yahweh gets angry with him. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't know if you had any insight there. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect. And you That's mentioned, a bit of you a puzzle. That's a you bit mentioned of a puzzle. Balaam's reputation outside of, mm-hmm. of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. There's... In the, in the 60s, there was a set of stories that were discovered about Balaam from, I mean, a few centuries after Numbers was written. Um, but the, the, uh, the idea is in those stories is very similar to what we find in the Bible, is that Balaam is, is hired as like a, a sorcerer or a wizard, you know, and is, is asked to uh, eliminate or, or to do a curse or, or protect from a curse and he does not do what he's been hired to do right and it's it's not a he's not a person that believes only in Yahweh in this story he's mm-hmm. a, a polytheistic um, prophet slash wizard um, but we we there is this sense that he's a little bit of a swindler mm-hmm. um, you mentioned Merlin Trickster, and I think that's a great yeah. a great a great thing a powerful magician but, and this may not be part of the Merlin story, but also a, a one of questionable character. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, so Yahweh gets angry with him. But then this strange thing happens um, when, when Balaam is going and his donkey is not behaving. Mm-hmm. And so he beats his donkey and then the donkey speaks. Mm. This is the only time of a speaking animal in the Bible outside of the garden story. Um, if we believe that's a regular snake, not a, a, a spiritual being of some kind, no one really sees the donkey as a spiritual being here, right? So <laughs> what the heck is going on? So I think at a worldview level, again, and I'm not, this is not a criticism, but like part of what's behind that question is our assumptions about nature and supernature and the distinction that the biblical people didn't have. And so, is the donkey a spiritual being? Well, what do we mean by that? You know, and so I think that, are are they saying that donkeys are angels? No. Are they saying (laughs) that donkeys have souls like humans do? No. You know, are they saying that donkeys are also one of the creatures in the mix that is involved in this drama between Yahweh and humans and spiritual beings? Yes. And so, I, I would say that. I think, literarily... And I mentioned this in the summary, like part of why I wanted to point out that Balaam was known in the region outside of the Bible, you know, is that he was a renowned 
person of power. You know, that, that's why I use the word wizard or, or whatever else. And as a seer, you know, somebody who could either see the future or be able to curse or bless based on that or whatever else. And so for the angel of the Lord to be standing directly in front of him three times, comedy comes in threes, Mm -hmm. and he's not able to see it, but his donkey does, is funny. Uh (laughs) (laughs) It's a lampooning. Yeah, it's he's Mm -hmm. being lampooned, you know, and again, especially for this is a this is a figure who was known, you know, I mean, the king of Moab sent for him specifically, you know, and so I think that, yeah, there's just this, this, the, the authors of numbers, I think, want to make it abundantly clear that Balaam has no power beyond what Yahweh grants him. Hmm. And that when he does try and speak over the people, he only can echo and agree with what Yahweh's already said. Uh, and so I think that that the donkey speaking is just part of that of like he is he is like I said in the summary less perceptive than his own ass, and I use that <laughs> word both because it's fun and because the translation I'm using does use that word, uh-huh. so I feel justified in saying it. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting when you read this and you imagine being an ancient Israelite reader. Um, what you're not saying is that they would read the donkey speaking and be like, oh yeah, donkeys just talk sometimes. Right. Yeah. They, yeah. they like us would know that donkeys don't talk. Right. Um, right. and what's fascinating is that you, you're left because Balaam replies and we don't have any sense of surprise on his part that his, his donkey <laughs> speaking to him. And so you're left asking like, does he just talk does to donkeys? Does his donkey talk? Yes, yeah. 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 We think of Shrek a little bit, right? Yeah, you know, is yeah. this uh, is this a Shrek <laughs> moment? Or is he so oblivious that it doesn't even occur to him yeah. that, oh, my donkey's talking. That's weird. Because he threatens to kill it. I mean, right. if I've got a talking donkey, I'm not going to stab it. You know, yeah. the, the, I'm going to make some money. Uh, he's just kind of a fool here. Well, and he, it's, that's, that's certainly true. More of a clown than uh-huh. a wizard. <laughs> well, and I wonder, too, because, I mean, within the Bible, like you said, there, is, there really isn't any other speaking animals <laughs> No, this is it, aside from the serpent. Right. But I don't know about other Near Eastern cultures if they had more, like, talking animal stories. I don't know. I want to look into that. The next question I've got is, I I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about Zelophehad's daughters Uh and the inheritance. This is how Numbers ends, um, with the inheritance of daughters whose father is killed. And so I'm just curious as to why you think Numbers ends that way. I mean, a lot of the themes, I think, come together here. You know, you see the fulfillment and the inheritance involved with that. You know, I think the clean, unclean thing is wrapped up with marrying within the tribe. Uh, marriage, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. uh, them being obedient to what the Lord has said. Like, you just kind of see all the themes being drawn together. It's not a very, like, epic ending, <laughs> you know, sure. for the Book of Numbers. It's like, you would hope that it would kind of be like, and then... Off in the distance, sparkling, <laughs> was Deuteronomy. <laughs> so no, I mean, I think that I think it makes sense for this to this scroll to end this way, just because it does bring all these these themes to bear. I think is a a rebuke to readers, ancient and modern, you know, who would want to more narrowly define like who gets to inherit or who is part of the promised people who benefits, you know, uh, from the land and everything else that, you know, we know, again, thinking about later history, 
Nehemiah and Ezra's day and Jesus's day, especially just that the small landholding farmers were being gobbled up by big, you know, basically corporate concerns, which is what's happening right now across America and many parts of the world. And so it's like this, this, this unending struggle between, you know, kind of the big man and the little guy. Uh, and so I think that that is being reflected here as well, that, that these uh, lady heirs, lady inheritors cannot be overlooked <laughs> or cannot be sidelined, mm-hmm. you know, a- as they go to inherit the land. You know, and I think as well, uh, and Mary Douglas, the lady who wrote the Leviticus's literature book, wrote another book on numbers, which was also very good if you mm-hmm. want to read that one. She makes the connection, and I, I think she's right in general. I don't know if kind of the, 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 the granular details necessarily right. The reason part of the reason why numbers include so many so many themes of, of women in marriage is that it's a parabolic commentary on Israel and Yahweh. And so I think we can see that here as well that that God it's a promise from Yahweh that he's going to take care of his beloved people like he's not going to let them fall through the cracks of history you know in the midst of all these other powers and empires moab and edom and sihon and og you know and all these other and and everything that's coming you know which we as readers know the philistines have landed you know and they're going to be a thorn in their side for hundreds of years and then after them you know the assyrians and the babylonians and the persians and the romans you know are all kind of lining up for their turn of stomping on the promised land mm-hmm. and and israel is mostly defenseless you know in all of that and and the prophets you know use the imagery of marriage between israel and yahweh quite extensively that's not to say that Zalaf has daughters didn't exist and there wasn't real legislation that they instigated. I think that's all that's all still true, but I think that the the authors of Numbers are presenting all these things in this way, both to tell us these things happen, but then also to make a, a, a larger statement about Yahweh's faithfulness to his people. As a Christian reading the book of Numbers, how am I supposed to see this speaking to me? What is what is Numbers tell me about my own discipleship in following Jesus? It can be, I think, a, a challenge to our assumptions about who belongs and doesn't belong in the congregation of God's people. And how do we live in the tension of being in the world but not of the world? You know, so I said at the beginning, and I was kind of joking, but also not, that like where we read Numbers 25, and the lesson we should not take is that we also should be like Phineas and murder idolatrous fornicators. We're not taking one-to-one lessons from Numbers. You know, so we read, and, and similar to some of the rough stories that we read in Genesis of like, well, how does the story make me react? Why do I react that way? How do I suppose we are quote unquote supposed to react to this. Are we supposed to be like, yeah, Phineas, get him. You know, are we supposed to be like, Ooh, that was, uh, extreme, (laughs) (laughs) you know, or, or just where do our assumptions lie? You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's just, it's, it's a, it can be a valuable, valuable test, I guess, of like, do we, do we feel like we are with Phineas and like, yeah, sinful people ought to be punished. Do we feel like we're with Zimri of like, hey, I'm just trying to lead my life, you know, or are we with Coosby who, (laughs) 
you know, we don't know really anything about her motivation, you know. But again, how what do we read, read into it? Oh, those women, they're trying to corrupt all of us. Seductress, you know, yada, yada, yada. It's like, okay, that's a, that's one way to read that. You know, <laughs> why do you suppose that's how you, you know, that's what you took away from it. Um, and so I think that, yeah, just generally speaking, I think that is the the overarching concern with numbers. Even going back to some of the stories we talked about last week of like, why does number seven go through all of the tribal chieftains and tell us that they all brought exactly the same offering for the Levites? And, you know, I think that, again, part of that answer is numbers is insisting that all of the tribes of Israel are part of the inheritance, not just Judah, you know, or not just the big ones, you know. So again, I think we we should step back and think about that of like, if there are people, either individuals we know or groups that we have major issues with for whatever reason, who also claim the name Christian and want to honor Jesus as Lord, but are very different than us for whatever reason, you know, are we trying to move towards reconciliation that or are we saying no no they don't they're not really in the family who gets to decide you know who's in the family and who's not and just how do we how do we interact how do we deal with those things so i think numbers can speak at least kick up a lot of questions which i think is important to do it can kind of crack open some assumptions that we might have and and if we let it cause us to examine some of those things in a new way this has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. <laughs> what are you doing? You look like you're farting. <laughs> you know, the ancient Israelites didn't see a distinction between nature and supernature. <laughs> is it a fart? Or is it a seraphim? <laughs> well, mine smell heavenly. That's right. <laughs> <what I know. laughs>